Okay. Am I on? Eddie? There we go. Okay. While everybody's coming in, we're running a little late from uh, prayer meeting. Uh, let me go over a couple of announcements real quick, several of them. Just a reminder, July 9th is the baptismal service over Grace Bible Church. Grace Bible Church is going to have a uh, busy weekend. Um, also, pray for Camp Arete. They, they did fill the position of a um, uh, female camp counselor. Also pray for our Vacation Bible School and Outreach, July Sovereignly, uh, rule over your creation and your creatures. And this gives us great comfort because we know that our lives are in your hands. And, and even when we make foolish or even wrong decisions, we know that often you are there and we are held up by your everlasting arms and we are protected and preserved despite our sinfulness or even our foolishness or our lack of wisdom. Father, we do pray for Giselle, for Jean's family, for the memorial service. We pray that it be a tremendous opportunity to glorify you and to remember someone who really stood for the truth and whose life was a tremendous testimony. And Father, we pray for those who come, that if any come that are not saved, that there'll be a clear presentation of the gospel. And Father, we pray for Alan, for his recovery, for uh, his strength, and that uh, he will heal rapidly and quickly uh, from these, these uh, slight injuries. Now, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking tonight in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to First Samuel chapter 29, 1 Samuel chapter 29. <clears throat> now, as we've gone through this last part of Samuel, as I have said in the previous two lessons, I, there, there are two threads here. because The, the writer is building something, and, and as he comes to the end of, of this, this episode, remember Samuel doesn't end in 1 Samuel 31. It keeps going. We're not anywhere close to the end of the book. The end of the book comes at the end of 2 Samuel. It doesn't come at the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, the only reason they're broken into two books in, um, in the English and as well as in, in the Hebrew was because you couldn't put it all on one scroll. So that's why they're separated. Same thing with Kings, same thing with Chronicles. In the original, they were one book. So we're not anywhere near the end. But, but we're building to a major turning point in the story, which is the end of Saul's reign, the end of Saul's life, and the, the actual installation of David when he becomes the crowned king, first of Judah, and then of the united kingdom. And so as the writer builds, what he is showing is a lot of things about, about David. And, and they're contrasted in many ways with Saul. David as the king of, of Israel who is a type of the Messiah and who is fulfilling the messianic role of the king of Israel to provide for his people, to protect his people, and to expand the kingdom to the as close as possible to the full borders that God had promised to Abraham. Now, neither Samuel nor, I mean, neither uh, David or, so or Solomon will accomplish that. There's a lot of false teaching about that through covenant theologians that, that they actually fulfilled it, but they did not. And so God has yet to have allowed Israel to fully conquer all of, the, all of the land that God gave them, and that will be only be done when the Messiah returns in the future uh, to the earth to establish his kingdom on the earth, and then they will possess all of the land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And so as the writer builds, he has, as it were, the, these two scenes he, that, that, that he's building. And on the one, it's talking about David, and on the other, it's about Saul, and he focuses on David, then he'll focus on Saul, then he'll focus on David, then he'll focus on Saul. And so we saw as we uh, go back to chapter 26, both David and Saul are involved 
Uh, Saul is pursuing him. He's got 3,000 men with him. Uh, They're in an encampment in the middle of the night. David sneaks in, and um, uh, the man that goes in with him, Abishai, uh, says, there he is. He's lying there. You can kill. God has given him into your hands, and we see that David is not going to be uh, seduced into that. He knows what the truth is, and he's going to abide by the law of, of God. And he doesn't kill Saul, no matter how worthy Saul might be of that, because at that instant, Saul isn't threatening him. Saul isn't about to kill him, even though he has tried many times, and that's what the purpose of this um, this uh, uh, adventure was on, on Saul's part. And so that ended, and uh, Saul goes back, and David, as we saw last time in chapter 27, David is thinking, how am I going to protect my people? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Because I, if I stay within Saul's domain, I'm just constantly going to be on the run. I'm constantly going to be threatened. Uh, there's Some will say, well, David's not really trusting the Lord to keep him alive. But there's no hint of that in the text at all, that David is doing anything wrong. But he's making a decision and he's going to go to the Philistines, but he's not really trusting the Philistines. As I pointed out last time, he is carrying out a a brilliant military maneuver based on deception, which we often find in law enforcement activities and in military activities. And I pointed out examples that you find in the Old Testament, where those who were serving the Lord recognized that that the enemy, for example, the midwives in Egypt, the enemy is Pharaoh, uh, the Canaanites uh, versus Rahab, and they were the enemy. It's not just a physical enemy. There is a spiritual assault going on here, and they understood those distinctions. And so there's deception on the part of the midwives. They deceive Pharaoh into, th- into why they weren't uh, taking the life of the Jewish boys when they were born. You have the deception of Rahab. and then, But it's also in Joshua the interplay with the deception uh, in, in combat, deception in the military as they uh, lured the uh, men of Ai, of I, actually, that's how it's pronounced, of I, out in away from the walled city into an ambush and killed them. So deception uh, within certain boundaries uh, is is legitimate. And so David uses deception with Achish, and Achish buys it lock, stock, and barrel. But David isn't going to live in Gath. David wants a separate city, so he's living in Ziklag. And um, as we came to the end of that that episode, it actually carries over to the second verse of chapter 28. Now, part of the reason that we have this episode continue and you shift in 28.3 to Saul, we're going to skip Saul for the time being and skip over chapter 28 and go to chapter 29. And part of the reason that this episode that's described in chapter 29 is there is because later on in David's reign, he's going to be accused of uh, falsely of having some role to play in the death of Saul. There's going to be these rumors that that somehow he was involved in that, somehow he was involved in in overthrowing uh, Saul's reign and, and in some way uh, responsible for his murder. And this is showing that that wasn't true, that David wasn't anywhere near the battle at Mount Gilboa, David had nothing to do with Saul's death. David was far in the south doing what Saul should have been doing, and that is defending the nation against the assault of of the Amalekites. Now, Saul's doing the right thing in defending the nation against the Philistines, but historically, going back to chapter 15, Saul disobeyed God and did not fulfill God's command to kill every man, woman, and child among the Amalekites, and so this problem this problem is going to uh, continue. So the writer makes it very clear that David did, uh, left the territory of Saul and that he sought protection from Achish the Philistine. And he shows that, uh, but it also shows that David did not fully trust himself to Achish. And in fact, he is carrying out a, something that is somewhat duplicitous 
toward Achish so that he's not put in a position where he's compromised uh, in making war against his own people. But in chapter 29, we see that even though we might make good decisions, they're not sinful decisions, they're not immoral decisions, they're not violating the law of Scripture, the commands of Scripture in any way. They may not be the wisest decision, but they're not sinful or immoral. And a year, two years, three years down the line, unforeseen, unintended consequences come up that put us in a that may put us in a compromised position. And this is what is going to take place in chapter 29. And we see how God, without mentioning God at all, a lot like this, these episodes where God's not mentioned is a lot like the book of Esther. God's name is not mentioned at all in Esther. The Jews that are in the Persian Empire, that are in the diaspora, that are out of the, um, out of the land, uh, are protected by God as he works behind the scenes. And that's the doctrine known as the uh, providence of of God. And so that's what we see in chapter 29 is God protecting David behind the scenes from the um, disastrous, unforeseen, and unintended consequences which could have resulted in David being put into combat against his own people. But the writer makes two things clear. First of all, that David is not responsible or involved in the death of Saul, and second, that David is fulfilling at the same time the responsibilities of the king in contrast to Saul. Now, that's really more developed as you get into chapter 30. So these events uh, indicate that David did not assist the Philistines in any way against the um, against the Israelites, but David was fulfilling the command of the Torah to totally eliminate the Amalekites. So uh, this is about God's providential deliverance, and it's just as true for us as it was for David at that time. So let's look at a couple of maps to get oriented as to what is taking place. David's David, for the last, ever since chapter 17, the action has taken place either in the central highlands of uh, of Israel just north of Jerusalem in Gibeah of Saul, which is only about two and a half, three miles north of Jerusalem, up to Ramah, which is two or three miles further north uh, with, with David, and this is in the in the court of Saul. And then he escaped Saul, went to Gath the first time, and then he's chased by Saul all through the wilderness. And then finally he decides to go back to Gath to be protected by, uh, by Achish. And he asks Achish for this uh, city, Ziklag, which is down here, probably located somewhere near here uh, to the south, right on the border of what we would today call uh, the Gaza Strip. At this time, the Philistines decide that they can attack Saul. Uh, part of what's going on here is with Israelite control in the north, in the Jezreel Valley, that is puts the Israelites in control of the major trade route that goes from the uh, south, the southwest in Egypt, and it goes to the north. It goes right up through through Israel, and then it will branch. One branch goes north to the Hittites. The other goes to the east to uh, what we call Iraq today, which was Mesopotamia at that time in the Mesopotamian uh, kingdoms. And so Philistines are going to attack because they want to seize control of the Valley of Jezreel so that they can control the, the, the trade routes. And we read in 1 Samuel 29.1, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain, that's a well, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Now, there's a couple of things we ought to uh, point out here, it's just geographically so we know what the flow of the action is here. Uh, Aphek, this is looking at the northern part of Israel now, whereas before we were looking at the more central area and south. Uh, Jerusalem 
is uh, down here in the south. Here's Gibeah. So that orients you to to where we're where we're focused here is the northern area. Over here along the coast, we have the area that is described as the lowlands, the coastal plain, the Shafela, and here is Afek. And Afek is located on the um, uh, just north of where we see um, Tel Aviv located today. So it just, you, you, in fact, the uh, Afek is located just a little bit northeast of of uh, modern Tel Aviv. Here's here's Joppa right here, which is right at the heart of Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv uh, was a separate settlement that started at the beginning of the 20th century and was built around uh, Joppa. But Afek is on the um, Yarkon River here, and this is the Afek is the site of a major defeat of Israel that occurred back in um, back in First Samuel chapter four. And a long time ago, when we were at the beginning of Samuel, we studied about that battle, and this is when they wanted to use the uh, Ark of God like a good luck charm against the Philistines. And God wasn't going to be played by these rebellious Jews. And so he allowed himself, the Ark of the Covenant, to be captured by the Philistines and the Israelites to be defeated. And that was when uh, when Eli, uh, the high priest, heard the news. He fell off his chair. He was so fat and overweight that he landed and broke his neck. And so that, and, and, and his daughter-in-law gave birth to a baby, named him Ichabod, meaning no glory. The glory of God is left, has left Israel. So Aphek has been under the control of the Philistines along the plain. So they're going to head up this way and then cross through. There's, uh, you can't tell too much on the map here. Right here at Megiddo, there's a, there was where the major trade route went. That's why Megiddo was such an important city. And the, they're, they're, they've discovered about 27 layers of civilization at the tell of, of Megiddo. A tell is a mound. I talked about that last, last week, and it looks like when you cut into it and take a slice out of the hill, it looks like a, 12-layer cake, or a 20, in this case, about a 30-layer cake, and you can just stratify all those civilization layers, and Megiddo was a fortified city later on in the time of Solomon. Uh, that's going to become a major fortified city where he's going to, uh, one of the places where he'll house his uh, chariot troops. So the Philistines come up here into the Jezreel Valley, which runs from northwest to southeast, and you can't, can't see it here. When we come back to chapter 28 and, and uh, 31, I'll expand this so you can see it. But down here in the southeast corner is Mount Gilboa. This is where the battle is going to take place. And what you see here, I'll show you on another map, just uh, at the base of Mount Gilboa is are the Herod Springs. And the Herod Springs are where... Gideon's 300 were whittled down to 300 uh, who would uh, lap up the ground the water as opposed to who would kneel down on the ground and really get into getting a good drink those who were just lappers were the ones who were kept and so he ended up with 300 that's probably the spring that is mentioned here there's one other there but Jezreel is located uh, literally literally just across today just across the highway uh, from uh, Herod Springs and the uh, Herod Kibbutz, which was there, which incidentally was the headquarters uh, for uh, um, Ord Wingate when he was training uh, the night fighters for the uh, uh, Israel's army or before, for the Haganah, before the... Uh, uh, war for independence, actually back in the 30s when they were in the Arab, Arab what's called the Arab Revolt. So the, the episode that we see here starts off, then the Philistines gathered at Aphek. This takes up the action after verse 2 of chapter 28. We're told in 28, 1 and 2, it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David and his men are elevated 
to the palace guard. They are the secret, secret service that is to protect the life of Achish in battle, and that is a high position of trust. And so Achish shows that he has been completely taken in by uh, David's uh, duplicity, and he trusts David uh, implicitly. And so he is making him his guardian. I'll make you one of my chief guardians. Now, that line of action stops. And in verse 3, you usually in most of your text, you'll see a break there. In verse 3, it says, now Samuel had died. So it's change of scenery change of focus, and now we're going to focus on Saul. That's what we're skipping. But in the fourth verse of that chapter, we read, Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. This is where later on during the time of Elisha, this is where the Shunammite woman was from. And Shunem is located uh, here. See, here's uh, Mount Goboa where that red star there is indicating the battle. And uh, Herod Spring would be just uh, about this is very close, and Shunem is just across in the valley. And if you notice right here, my red circle sort of uh, obliterates it a little bit. That is the village of Endor, which is where the witch of Endor was located. All these are very close to each other. This is within just about three miles uh, of each other, an easy easy walking distance. So this sort of orients you, but that that's where we're going to be. That's what happened. So uh, chapter 2 begins with this flashback to uh, the end of, the, and picks up the narrative at the end of, of verse 2. And so what happens at the end of verse, in verse 2, is we're told that the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. In other words, this is a military review. Every lord of the Philistines, the five lords, the five cities, and their five five areas around them had marshaled their armies together. There, it shows that they're highly organized. It shows that they have a strong uh, military, and they are marching in review before the five lords of the Philistines. And Achish was one of those five lords, and he had no more power, no more authority than any of the other, uh, of the other four. And so as uh, his troops are at the back, they're the last ones to come into the parade. And when the lords of the Philistines see them, they say, what in the world are these Hebrews doing here? See, this has been a situation that has occurred once before in chapter 14 at the Battle of Michmash. There were various uh, disaffected Israelites. I guess there have always been self-loathing Jews, but there were these anti-Zionist Jews, even at that time, that had volunteered for the Philistine army before the Battle of Michmash. And so uh, they suddenly saw after Jonathan executed his maneuver, remember we studied that, and he and his armor bearer scaled the cliffs and um, surprised the Philistine troops, and then God intervened and routed them, uh, sent a panic among them, and routed them. And so as they're fleeing, all of a sudden all these Jews that had volunteered for the Philistine army realized they were about to lose and so they suddenly turned in the midst of the battle and began to, and to, took advantage of all the confusion which is what um, uh, 1 Samuel 14.21 says that everything was completely confused and so they began to attack and kill the Philistines and it just turned into an absolute melee and they just, just fell apart so uh, the, these other Philistine lords remember that, and they say, what are these, these guys doing here? And Achish is going to defend David because he completely trusts him, and he says, isn't this David the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who's been with me these days and these years? He says, he's been working for me for the last um, 16 months, and he has proved faithful, and I can trust him with everything. I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. So uh, Achish gives him his complete trust. And then in verse 4, the, the, these other lords of the Philistines are not taken in by David. They understand that this is a dangerous situation, that David 
is the, uh, they, they, they've heard the rumors. He's anointed to be king of Israel. He is loyal to Saul. They remember Goliath. They remember that after the battle, David cut off Goliath's head. They remember the songs that were sung in the streets of Israel, that Saul had killed his thousands, but David's his ten thousands. And they're saying, there's no way we're going to let David go into battle on our side against Israel because that, that is just going to end uh, badly. So they are extremely angry with Achish, and they basically force him to tell David to leave. This is the providential hand of God working behind the scenes in bringing this to their attention. And the writer doesn't ever mention God. But when God is working behind the scenes, we don't necessarily know what is going on. Years later in our lives, most of you probably can look back and you can look back to the last 20, 30 years and see how God has providentially taken care of you and protected you and provided for you, no matter what your failures were, no matter what the, how awful the circumstances seem to have been, uh, God is the one who protected you. So they tell Achish here, one of the interesting words that's used here, they say, uh, don't let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. And the Hebrew word for adversary is Satan, Satan. Satan means adversary of God. It is a title given to uh, the angel, whom we usually refer to as Lucifer, but that's a bad, not even a translation. In the Hebrew, it's Halel ben Shahar there in Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 14. And he says, For with what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? See, they're thinking back. He took the head of Goliath, there's nothing that's going to bring him back into favor with Saul more than if he turns against us and slaughters us and then presents Saul with all of our heads. And so they then, in verse 5, say, Isn't this David of whom they sang to one another in dances and said, Saul has slain his, his thousands and David his ten thousands? So uh, Achish is forced to set him back to dismiss David, but Achish... We're told, and this is interesting, it doesn't, the text just doesn't say Achish sent him back. We see this whole conversation that goes on in the next few verses between Achish and David. And it helps us to understand something about how deceived Achish has been. But the, the writer is doing a little bit more. Whenever you see the writer starting to slow down and pay attention to something, you wonder why in the world is that there? Well, we have to figure out why it's there. And there are certain aspects of Achish that are being, uh, that are being brought out and highlighted here by, by the way that the writer has, has, has written this. So in verse 6 we read, Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as Yahweh lives. Find anything curious about that? Surely as Yahweh lives. This is from the mouth of of the Philistine. Now somebody probably come along and say, well, maybe he was a believer. I think Christians sometimes are too optimistic to try to get everybody into heaven. Uh, it was typical among the Philistines, as it is with many pagans who are polytheistic, to just, when they hear about another god, they just bring that god into their pantheon. Uh, that's one thing that happens if you were to have gone to India, even if you go to some parts of India today, where they worship many gods, you tell them about Jesus and don't make it clear that Jesus isn't like any of their other gods, that we worship the creator God who is not like any other God. You can't put him up there on your shelf with your uh, 400 other uh, idols. But that's what the Philistines would do. Is if they, they've got somebody, they're gonna, they, they want to sweet talk you. If you're Egyptian, then they're going to swear by the name of your God. If you're a Hittite, they're going to swear by the name of a Hittite God. And so this is just Achish making nice. And he knows David, David worships Yahweh, so that's just another God who cares. And so he swears by the name uh, of Yahweh. And he says, uh, because he knows that that would mean something to David. He says, as you have been upright... And you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army's been good in my sight. See, he gets an A-plus evaluation report from Achish. He hasn't done anything wrong. He has, but Achish doesn't know about it. 
he's been able to disguise that because while D- David uh, was in Ziklag, he was raiding in the south and destroying Israel's enemies and telling Achish that he was raiding into Israel. And so he was cloaking his activity so that he was able to expand the territory that God gave them. And it's interesting, I pointed this out, I want to reinforce this, that this is the kind of wisdom that Christians need to have when you're living in a pagan environment. It is not unlike David and Azariah, uh, Mishael, um, and Azariah and the uh, in Daniel 1 and um, uh, Han- Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael in Daniel 1 and Daniel in Daniel uh, 3 and Daniel 4 where they have to live in a pagan Babylonian environment and they have to figure out how to avoid breaking Torah and on the same time not offending their pagan masters. And we live in that same kind of a world where we have to figure out, if you work for big corporations, how you can avoid violating a biblical, theistic, Judeo-Christian worldview and what Scripture teaches, and at the same time not offend uh, the idiot pagans that you work for or that are in the government that have mandated certain uh, policies that really do run contrary to your biblical worldview. And Christians today are so foolish, they don't even know that they're, they've got those problems. But the first step is to learn the Word, and as you learn the Word, then you begin to learn uh, and be able to discern what's going on, on in your culture. So David, that's what David's trying to do. He doesn't want to uh, offend Achish, but on the other hand, he doesn't want to put himself back in a position where he's threatened by Saul. So Achish goes on and says, return in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. In other words, David, whatever you do, don't make him any angrier. Just just take your men and leave. Don't protest it. Just go on. And so David responds, and he says, but, but what have I done? Have I done something to offend them? Have I done something wrong? Has, is there anything that you can point out in the behavior of your servant that um, that I've done wrong, that I shouldn't go, and, and notice this, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. Now, who does he identify there? Who's my Lord the King? Is that Saul? Maybe. Is it the Lord? Maybe. Is it Achish? It's ambiguous. See, he's, he's walking that razor's edge, okay? Without saying anything, he implies, he says it in such a way that Achish can take it anywhere, any direction that he wants to. So what we see here when we come to this, this, this section is that Achish is being used by the writer of Samuel as as both a type, a shadow image uh, of Saul and a contrast. He plays him off against Saul. So both of them are pagan kings. Both of them are operating in violation of, of they don't believe in God, they're unbelievers, they don't, don't believe in any promise of salvation, uh, anything like that. And so he has to, um, uh, the writer is also showing us that at times he is a little more positive than even Saul is. And what, here's some things that, that we should observe here. Both kings made David their personal bodyguard. Both kings made David their personal, they both trusted him. So he shows that he is a man of integrity, and we see that in both 1 Samuel 22.14 and in 1 Samuel 28.2. Both men are impressed with David in his integrity and David as a warrior, his fighting abilities, and they want that on their side. So both of them look at David as, a, as an asset for them. Yet in contrast, both of them end up removing him from the ranks of their soldiers. They do it in a different way, but they remove him from the ranks of their armies. 
And both are responsible for sending David into the south, into Judah. And what we're going to see when we get into 2 Samuel is that David is brought uh, to the kingship first in the southern kingdom of Judah. That's his, that's his tribe. He's, he's from the tribe of Judah. And he's first going to be made king in Hebron. And then he is going to, after seven years, finally unite, uh, unite the tribes. So both of these men are responsible for sending David down into Judah, where he's able to strengthen his base in that area. And both of them are completely, they completely misjudge David. Saul thinks David's out to kill him, and Achish thinks that, that, Saul, that David is against uh, Saul. Uh, Saul considered David to be his, his mortal enemy, but in fact, ironically, David is his most loyal subject. Achish thought that David was a loyal subject, but ironically, he was his enemy. Those are some of the uh, contrasts and comparisons that the author wants us to observe as he's building this, this particular uh, narrative. But the bottom line on all this is as it shows the similarity between Achish and Saul, it is showing that Saul is a king like all the other nations. He's just like Achish in many, many ways. He's not distinct as the anointed king of Israel uh, should be. So then we come to uh, the last part of Achish's instructions. Say, get up early in the morning, take your... Uh, master servants with you have come with you, and as soon as you get up early in the morning at first light, leave. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning and to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. That's where the action in chapter 28 is going to take place, is, is starting up in verse, verse 3. Now here's another little map I put in here. Uh, that focuses on the Jezreel Valley here. And here's Beit Shan, which is where Saul's head's going to be mounted on the wall. Uh, here's Mount Gilboa. And just to the north is Mount Mora, which should take us back to the battle with uh, Deborah and Barak in the early part of Judges. And then up here is Mount uh, Tavor, for which the uh, Israeli assault weapon is named. Uh, so this, that's the area we'll come back, look at those maps a little bit. So what I want to do as we finalize this little section, this chapter, is to focus on what the Bible teaches about divine providence and its comfort for the believer. Divine providence is a strength for the believer to know that God ultimately is in control. Now, that doesn't mean he stomps on our volition, our free will, but ultimately, God is overseeing the events in our lives to bring about that which, which he desires. Now, that means he may allow us to make a lot of bad decisions and to destroy our lives like he does with Saul. But in the end, he's working out his purposes. So we'll go through several things here. First of all, a definition. What does it mean when we talk about the providence of God? It, it refers to the fact that God, as the creator over everything, regulates and protects all of his creation and creatures with a special emphasis on his oversight of human history, all people, and especially his people, believers. Old Testament, Israel, New Testament, church, God is working even now in the history of Israel. So it's God's regulation and protective care for all his creation and creatures with special emphasis on his oversight of human history, all people, and especially his, his people. Now, when I say it's his, his regulation of his creation, we'll see that God is the one who's in control of the functions of creation, either directly or indirectly. Okay, we'll talk about that under about the fourth point, I think. Now, where do we get this term providence? Have you read it in your Bible? For those of you who are reading, have been reading through your Bible the last year or two, how many times have you run across the word providence? Not once. It's not a biblical term. Like a lot of theological terms, it's a word that is, that is coined uh, to express something that is 
implicit in what the scripture says, but it's not explicitly taught. And we'll see the scriptures when we get there. So the term, on the second point, the term isn't a biblical term, but it describes a biblical concept. It's derived from the Latin word providentia, which translates a Greek word, pronoia, which incidentally doesn't occur in relation to God in the New Testament. Pronoia simply indicates foresight, but it has come to indicate this, this foreknowledge of God that prepares and controls the circumstances of history. So that indicates that it's related to the attribute of God called his omniscience, that God knows all things. God is, uh, there's nothing that God doesn't know. He never increases in knowledge. He never learns anything because he's always known everything. Third point, the Christian doctrine of divine providence is based, therefore, on God's character, specifically a blend of his attributes of sovereignty, that God rules over his creation. He's not the deist version that just sort of wound the clock up and then left and he's busy somewhere else and letting everything just kind of run down. Uh, he is intimately involved in directly and ruling over his creation. His omniscience, he knows everything. His omnipotence, he is able to do everything he desires to do to bring about the end result that he wishes. Uh, his uh, righteousness, that God is governed by his own character, which is perfectly righteous. There is no sin or inequity in God and his justice and his love for his creation. So we have the essence of God that we talk about. This involves uh, seven of the attributes that we normally highlight. His sovereignty, his righteousness, justice, love, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. All of that is involved in God overseeing his creation. Now, in the fourth point, we have a counterfeit to the providence of God, and Satan and the cosmic system have various counterfeits that are set forth in all the false religions. You have it in Islam, you have it in Buddhism, you have it in Hinduism, you have it in just everyday pop religion on the street. You have all these pseudo-concepts uh, of providence. Terms like fate, luck. Well, it was just serendipitous that this happened the other day. These are all terms that are used to describe this. Or, well, nature does this. If you're a believer, I think you need to try to use the word creation or creature rather than nature. Nature is, is, is just the creation. It's an impersonal term, but people say nature did this. They're implying personhood and intelligence to that which is impersonal and doesn't have a mind. Okay, nature is a term that, that we've all gotten sucked into, and it is, it is not a good term to use. When we're talking about creation, we're talking about God's creatures. Let's, let's use biblical terms, and that'll reinforce certain ideas. So all of these terms, fate, this is what controls Islam, is, is inshallah, is Allah wills. Uh, Allah controls everything. It's total fate. It's destroyed all initiative and all desire on the part of, of the Islamic culture, which is why they've never risen above the, uh, the dirt and the dust. If it weren't for the discovery of oil, they would still be living in their hovels in the Middle East because they don't have a view of ultimate reality that allows them to grow and advance. Modern science is grounded and the results of the Reformation in history, the Christian Reformation, and the original groundwork for science came out of the Reformation period. So uh, these are terms that just represent pure uh, human, human, uh, human viewpoint. You'll hear people uh, under the first category of fate or nature, even the universe, you have people say, well, I must have upset the universe. 
Yeah, I'm hearing that a lot lately. The universe is mad at me. Well, the universe is impersonal. The universe has no emotion. The universe has no intellect. The universe is just pure matter and energy. It has none of those things. We can't say that the universe did this or the universe did that because the universe has no will, mind, or emotion. Fifth point, the doctrine or the biblical teaching of providence is grounded on a number of different passages. For example, in Hebrews 1.3, the writer is talking about Jesus Christ and who he is as the eternal God-man, the eternal Son of God. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, that's providence. That is, um, that is showing indirect or general uh, providence. It's not direct or special. And the difference is that when God created uh, vegetables, when God created animals, when God created man, he embedded within them the processes for germination and reproduction and, and the whole life cycle so that they can replicate and multiply. And that's the indirect idea, the general providence idea, because God has built into, um, built into the universe, built into his creation, these ideas so that the universe is, has certain mechanisms built into it that are self-cleansing. So water can become polluted. A lot of different things pollute the water in um, in creation, you have animals who urinate and defecate in the water, and that makes it impure. But as it goes down through sand and rocks, it purifies itself. The same thing happens with the atmosphere. God builds into the atmosphere certain processes that cleanse the atmosphere. Now, man can make it very, very difficult and overloaded, but in all of the years since the Industrial Revolution, which is the worst of man's uh, pollution, we've never touched what one volcano will produce in one day. And all of the harmful chemicals that are, are put into the atmosphere by just one volcano, and there have been thousands and thousands of volcanoes. So everything is overseen by by God who upholds all things by the word of his power. Here it's attributed to the second person of the Trinity. Same thing happens in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, uh, specifically in verse 16. For by him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. God the Father is the architect. God the Son is the construction engineer or the project manager. And God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who carries out that work. So all three members of the Godhead have functionality. So he created all things that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And last phrase, in him all things consist. That means that ultimately it is the Lord Jesus Christ who holds everything together at the sub-sub-subatomic level. He's the glue that holds the universe together. So we have scriptures that, that talk about this uh, as we go through scripture, that he, God regulates the universe both directly and indirectly. And that's, theologically, that's described by these terms I mentioned a minute ago as either special or direct, or excuse me, special or general providence. So special providence is that direct activity, and indirect is general providence. The fact that he rules over the universe, we see this in passages such as Psalm 22, 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. He rules history. There's not a king that rises or a president that goes down that does so apart from the permissive will of God 
and his providential control. Psalm 75, 7, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And then we see that God supplies the needs of his people. This is where providence hits our daily lives. Where Paul prays at uh, or talks to the Philippians in Philippians 4.19 and says, My God shall supply all your needs. How? Not directly, but indirectly through your jobs, through friends, through family. Those are the mechanisms that God set up in order to provide for us. Those are the primary mechanisms. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So there's a lot of different passages that we could go to that substantiate this. Uh, let me just hit a few as we as we go along. Uh, we're a little short on time. We've got about another 10 minutes, so I'm not going to drill down on this too much. These passages imply God's control. So it's not explicitly stated, but it's implied in these various passages. For example, Matthew 6, 26 and 28 to 32. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, for, but your heavenly, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. See, God is overseeing his creation, taking care of feeding the birds. Are you not of more value than, than they are? Goes on in verse 28, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You just look at a beautiful field of blue bonnets. God did that. He oversees that. He built that into creation, the seeds, the reproductive process, and they come back every, every spring. Now, man can help that, as we've seen with the Texas Highway Department. They've seeded blue bonnets all over the place, which just makes it beautiful to go drive around uh, Central Texas and other, a few other places during the early spring and see those blue bonnets everywhere. But the conclusion is, now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, that's what he's talking about here, is if God's going to providentially take care of creation, if you are a child of God because you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God is going to take care of you too. So we can relax. We're not to worry. That's what Jesus goes on to talk about in the context is not to worry, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God will provide for you. Another verse in the New Testament that emphasizes God's uh, sovereign uh, care over creation is in Acts fourteen seventeen. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. That's believer and unbeliever. That's called common grace sometimes. It has to do with God's providential care. There's also God's control over life and death. In Joshua 24, 3 and 4, we see this emphasis that God multiplied Abraham's descendants and gave him Isaac. God is the one ultimately who provides for a son for Abraham. And to Isaac, he gave Jacob and Esau. And he gave them the lands and the possessions that they have. And to Jacob, he gave his, his, all of his children, the tribes of Israel. First Samuel 2.6, which we studied the uh, hymn of Hannah at the beginning, that the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. So God is responsible for life and for death. Second uh, Samuel twelve twenty two. After David's uh, child, the child that was conceived uh, through his uh, affair with Bathsheba, said his adultery with Bathsheba says, while the child was alive, I fasted. When the child was the child died after birth. David says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? that the Lord may live. Life is ultimately in the hand of God. Kind of like these two passages, because it involves a, another one of those fulfilled prophecies that took place in the Old Testament. There's a prophecy in 1 Kings 21, 19 uh, about 
uh, Ahab, the evil king in uh, the north in Israel, that God prophesied that in the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, uh, Ahab had had him killed, said, dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. And then after the battle that's described in chapter 22, when um, Ahab was killed and they brought the chariots back to um, uh, Samaria, they washed out the chariot and uh, the dogs came and licked up the blood. See, God's in control. He can say, this is what's going to happen and it's going to come to pass. God's providential sovereignty is involved in our adversity, in in divine discipline. Psalm 119.75, the psalmist says, I know, Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. God's in control and he will discipline us when necessary. God's also involved in government, raising up kingdoms and taking down kingdoms, raising up kings and taking down kings, raising up presidents and taking down presidents. Daniel 2.20 and 2.21, Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And then later, as he's addressing Nebuchadnezzar, he says, You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you kingdom, power, strength, and glory. God is the one who gives dominion to the nations. And then when later, when Nebuchadnezzar is driven out because he went through a seven-year period of insanity, He's driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast. He basically lived and acted like an animal for seven years. And at the end, this was done till he knew. See, there at the end, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men. It's not ultimately him. It's ultimately God. But when we get into the New Testament, when we get into the New Testament, we have a great passage in uh, 2 Corinthians dealing with God's providence. This is when um, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's gone through various hardships. There's reference. It's somewhat obscure and and uh, uh, referring to uh, Paul being thrown to the beasts in Ephesus. And um, that's connected with 1 Corinthians 15.32 Nobody knows exactly when that took place. Uh, could be the riot that took place in Ephesus that's described in Acts 19:23 to 41, but apparently he's imprisoned and, and typical in Rome. He's taken to the Colosseum and thrown to the wild beast. So he says that we don't really know, but he goes through all these hardships. And between First and Second Corinthians, he says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. So he's, he, he's stating this, that, that, as if he had been sentenced to death. But we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. No matter how bad it looked, we needed to trust in God who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through me. See, what he's talking about is how God providentially provided for him and took care of his needs. And for the believer, we have the promise in Romans eight twenty eight and 29. We know that all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. All things work together for good. God is the one who is working behind the scenes in the believer's life to bring things together so the end result is good. It is for those who are the called according to his purpose. So that is the promise. This is what David is, is realizing and learning in this episode is that God is taking care of him no matter what the circumstances may be. God is the one who's behind the scenes protecting him and providing for him. And that's the providence of God. Now next week when we come back, we'll go into uh, chapter thirty where David is fulfilling his messianic role to protect Israel against these um, long-time 
enemies, the Amalekites. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your providential care for us, your love for us, your concern for us. Father, we recognize that ultimately your care for us is expressed by uh, Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins that we could have eternal life, not by earning it, not by being good enough for it, but by trusting in him and him alone that the instant we believe that he died for our sins, we have eternal life, and that can never be taken from us. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand these things and apply them in our thinking and in our living, that we might not succumb to sins of worry, anxiety, fear, but trust in you, knowing you are in control. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.